Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Alec Bernitsky, co-founder and CEO of Portside, a next-generation financial management platform for private aviation. Welcome to the podcast, Alec. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, first question I have to ask, do you have a pilot's license? I do not, sadly. I think I missed the boat on that one. My grandfather used to fly and my dad also did as well. And after I was born, I'm the oldest of uh, all girls. After I was born, my mom grounded him. He's no longer allowed to fly. Oh, oh, it's uh, well, I, I spent a lot of time with, with people who, who fly all sorts of aircraft from, you know, little Cessnas, you know, all the way up to to commercial planes. But unfortunately, I never got a pilot's license and don't really have the time to do it now. One of my uh, really good friends, he was actually in the military for uh, 12 or 14 years, and he flew Apache helicopters. And today he still flies. And the only time I've ever been in a small private plane was he took me up in one of these tiny little planes that he rents. And it was really fun. We left out of Oakland and it was a a magical experience. So I kind of understand why people get their licenses. Yeah, no, no, same here. And to be honest, I enjoy little planes much more than bigger planes. You kind of, you feel you feel the flight and it's it just, it's much more fun. You can go lower. You can see more low, low and low is more fun than, you know, fast and high. Absolutely. Well, how did you get interested in the space in the first place? You know, I feel like people get into this industry one of two ways, either you're a pilot and then, you know, you build software or kind of want to improve processes or to change something about, about the industry, or you travel a lot. And I got into the industry because I travel a lot. I've uh, probably been to over a hundred countries and really enjoy it, you know, for, for fun and for work, I kind of was fortunate that I've been able to go lots of places. So I ended up spending a lot of time on the plane and kind of, as I spent time on the plane, I ended up thinking about the industry and, you know, airlines and founded my, my first company kind of after business school, after consulting at Bain in commercial aviation, focused on revenue management, ticketing, distribution, kind of the, 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 the nuts and bolts of how an airline works. Uh, kind of built a successful company, sold it, and uh, you know, same co-founder, same investors founded this business focused again on aviation, but on on private aviation. How different is commercial and private aviation? It's it's entirely different, uh, but not in the way that most people think about it. It's not the difference between necessarily a luxury aircraft versus economy class uh, at a commercial airline. It's the real difference is that it's. A commercial airline is always scheduled. It flies from point A to point B. A schedule is known and, you know, maybe changes, but, you know, the tickets are sold for a specific flight. Uh, unscheduled aviation or private aviation has many components to it. It might be a private uh, kind of luxury aircraft, could be a medical aircraft, could be an industrial fleet of helicopters that transport workers from, you know, from, from the coast to, to an offshore rig or, you know, do electrical inspections. So there's many, many types of not scheduled flights. And because they're unscheduled and are ad hoc, 
and you never know where you're going to go. The, the industry is different and what, what those pilots need and what operators of those aircraft need is very, very different than what a United Airlines needs. When you have unscheduled flights like that, how do you even pull together the crew and the space? I know very little about this industry, so I'd love to kind of dig in on how it actually works. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, let, let's take a charter operator, for example, where somebody calls and says, I'd like to go from San Francisco to Las Vegas, and they do not own an airplane. They would like, like to charter an airplane. Well, first, somebody needs to find an aircraft for them. And, you know, how many people are going to fly? What time are you going to fly, uh, et cetera? Is it going to be a small plane? Is it going to be a large plane? So there's a whole process that that that, that takes place. Um, and then they obviously need to have crew members that are, you know, legal, meaning that they haven't flown too much over the last, you know, day, seven days, 30 days, et cetera. They need an aircraft that's legal. Uh, they need to make sure that they can land in Las Vegas, Um you know, there's a, a few airports, you know, as far as I know, you don't need landing slots, but in some, some airports you do like a commercial airline, you need, to, you know, you can only land these five minutes and, you know, they may, you, you may not have any landing slots. So a lot goes into planning each flight and flying in the U S is relatively simple, uh, but, you know, flying internationally, it's, is exponentially more complex. You need to, if you're flying over multiple countries, you need overflight permits, you need to file them a certain amount of time in advance. Um, you need passports for you know passengers and crew members. You need visas, and an operator needs to validate all of that. The same way that United Airlines validates it when you check in, a private operator needs to understand the rules of all the countries that they will fly over, and enforce those rules for all the passengers that are on board. It's uh, it's it's actually incredibly complex. What percent of private aviation is domestic versus international? U.S. market is by far the biggest in the world. It's probably 50%, probably more than 50% of global aviation, depending on size. But, uh, you know, U.S. has more than 50% of the, all the airports in the world. So it's, it's by far the dominant aviation market. When you say, you know, at the beginning, if somebody wants to take a flight from L.A. to Vegas, you have to find a plane. How do you how do you go about finding a plane? And does it have to be already in the location of the origin, or do people actually like fly a plane somewhere just to you know like empty essentially to take somebody where they want to go? Lots of planes do fly empty. So you would call an operator. You would call a local. Uh, an operator is another word for a, an airline. Um, so somebody who's licensed by the FAA to to operate these aircraft. And there's many types of licenses, and some some operators operate one or two aircraft. Some operate hundreds of aircraft. So it just depends on, you know, scale and scope. I mean, NetJets, for example, is the largest private operator in the world. I mean, they're larger than Southwest Airlines in terms of the number of aircraft that they manage. So there's a huge difference in the scope of these uh, of these companies. But you would find somebody local, usually, who, you know, who's familiar with the San Francisco market, for example, and, you know, has aircraft locally. And they may have an aircraft that, that's available, or they might find another operator maybe in Los Angeles or maybe in Santa Barbara or further afield that will have the right kind of an aircraft and it will be flown to San Francisco, pick you up and then take you to to Las Vegas. Obviously a lot more expensive to do that because every hour of flight is expensive between fuel and engine, not to mention pilots and everything else. So ideally you find an aircraft that's close to where you are, but sometimes you need to fly it empty, you know, to pick you up and then take you someplace. Do all airports at the U.S. allow private aviation, or do you have to use specific airports? Uh, 
My, I, I, I don't know definitively, but I would say that the vast majority of airports allow private air aviation. So even large commercial airports like you know SFO, JFK, you can certainly land a private airplane at those airports. How do they coordinate with the scheduled flights? It sounds like there's kind of like a, almost two different industries. So are there um, ways that they can communicate and coordinate? Uh, There certainly is. And air traffic control takes care of that. Uh, Airports that are highly impacted, like JFK, there's certainly landing slots that need to be reserved far in advance. So you can't just say, hey, I'm going to fly in, you know, now into JFK. That's not going to work. But a smaller, you know, public airport that's not as busy as JFK, you probably could. How big is this industry? It sounds like way bigger than I think, given you were saying NetJets is bigger than Southwest Airlines. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, I think of it, it, it is a very large industry. I mean, there's uh, well, over ha- well over half a million private aircraft, uh, you know, in the world, probably closer to 750,000 private aircraft. So it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, in terms of kind of aircraft that our company focuses on, those tend to be kind of more complex, professionally managed aircraft that uh, that have full-time staff. So full-time pilots, full-time flight attendants, mechanics, et cetera. So th- these are not the little, you know, Cessnas that, you know, that somebody would buy and, and fly for fun. These are, you know, aircraft that fly a lot. Um, and there's about 150,000 of those employing probably a million people in the U.S. I mean, this it's a large industry. And what are they typically, like, what type of routes are they doing or what are they transporting if it's, um, you know, not kind of these onesie twosie planes? Uh, uh, you know, every large corporation owns an aircraft or almost every large corporation owns an aircraft. Uh, some corporations, um, you know, reserve that just for the executive teams. Some corporations fly, um, fly employees from, you know, between locations. I mean, Intel is a good example where... Uh, they have a fleet of commercial aircraft that they that fly, you know, daily between office locations, uh, flying their employees. In fact, it's you know th- that flight department is large enough where FAA came up with a special regulatory regime because it's not quite a public airline that's highly regulated, but it flies far more people than a typical corporate flight department. So they needed regulations that were more sophisticated for that. So it's uh, but there's quite a few companies like that 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 fly that fly. Uh, customers. I mean, all the oil companies uh, have large fleets of uh, of aircraft to fly employees, you know, to you know, to the oil fields that you know may not have any public infrastructure at all. Uh, there are thousands of medical helicopters and uh, aircraft uh, in the U.S. and you know, probably five thousand globally that are specifically outfitted to transport sick patients or you know for emergency evacuations. And depending on the market, it would be an aircraft. I mean, depending on the distance, could be an aircraft or could be uh, could be a helicopter. On the uh, helicopter side, so medical obviously can land, uh, you know, at the hospitals or wherever the destination is. But somebody told me something like hel- helicopters can land almost anywhere legally. Is that true? In 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 areas that are not built up, to some extent, that's true. Um, and you know, de- 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 depending on how the the operation is regulated, you know, the 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 air the airfield needs to be prepared a different way. So if you're flying paying customers, you know, it's a higher level of regulation than if you're flying yourself, for example. If you're flying yourself and you have a lawn, you could probably land on it. Um, you know, you know, within you know within you know within certain limits. But if you're flying paying customers, you know, the level of facilities that that you need to have is 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 is, is far more stringent. 
And that's typically US is unique. And the reason the market here is so big is, you know, it's relatively easy for a manufacturer to, to, to make a, a two seater light aircraft. Uh, you know, hobbyists can build them, you can fly them. Um, you know, most countries don't have that. It's, it's very difficult to get into an aircraft manufacturing business. In the US, it's, it's easy. If you have an idea for a, a new novel looking aircraft, well, you can build it, you can get a, 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 an experimental license from the FAA and, you know, fly it away from populated areas, maximum two people. Relatively easy to do. And, there's every, and regulation becomes more and more complex as you get into paying passengers and if you get, as you get into more complex aircraft and an aircraft is over 19 seats, an aircraft that go over the Great Lakes, right? So there's many, many types of regulations, but it enables somebody to get into kind of in, into flying relatively easily. Most countries don't have that, so it's 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 very difficult to just buy an airplane and uh, or you know rent an airplane and and fly it. That's crazy. So I did not realize that in the U.S. you could just go build your own aircraft and then essentially get it certified by the FAA. Uh, you you can. I mean, it, I mean, it's it's not something you would do over there. As it's not a weekend project, but it's it's really right. possible. And you know, U.S. is also unique in that you can build your own airport. Um, it could be a private airport, or you can uh, ask FAA to put a tower at the airport, and you know, you know, turn it into a publicly available airport. You can build your own fuel farm and effectively sell fuel to yourself or maybe to others. You know, mo- mo- most countries don't have I- anything like this. You're not going to be able to build an airport or build a fuel farm at an airport. What's required to build your own airport? I don't know. I haven't built one before, but I know many customers have own airports. Um, you know, it's 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 common if if you, I mean if you're if you're a forestry company and you need and you have you know hundred thousand acres of forest land and there's no airport nearby, how are you going to get there? So you know, so it's possible to build an airport there, and um, and you buy an aircraft that can land on an unimproved airfield, and you can go there. Right, you know, bigger tires, lower speed, etc. You're not going to land a large aircraft on a on a kind of simple airport. That makes sense, but I definitely did not think of that before. Yeah, um, but it's, yeah, but outside the U.S., I mean, maybe in Australia you can do that. I mean, some markets like Australia and Germany are much more much more progressive when it comes to kind of aviation. But in most markets, most countries, you cannot do this. What share in the U.S. is um, owned versus rented versus uh, kind of like shared in terms of aircraft? Mm. Let me think. Well, it, when it comes to little, I mean, by, by far, most aircraft are owned. So, this, but, you know, but most of those are small aircraft, right? You know, little Cessna is, Cessnas, they fly for 40, 50 years. And, you know, the older aircraft could cost twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. I mean, when, when they're new, they cost closer to half a million dollars, but you know, buying an older one is just as safe as a new one, maybe not as fancy, but I mean, it, it flies for decades and it's not terribly expensive to fly it. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's fairly accessible um, to, to a lot of people. So it's, you know, most aircraft are owned. Once you get into larger aircraft and, you know, you get into fractional models where you buy a portion of an aircraft or, you know, you charter an aircraft, but that's, that's has more to do with, you know, somebody who flies, you know, 50 hours a year or a hundred hours a year. And needs a larger aircraft to travel a longer distance. It's not 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 a fun flight over the weekend. <laughs> got it, got it. <laughs> well, in terms of, it sounds like there's a lot of moving pieces in this industry. Uh, what exactly are you building at Portside? 
so we, we, we started out by, by building tools that enable dispatchers and operators of so-called airlines, operators of private aircraft uh, to communicate uh, more f- efficiently and effectively internally and with their customers and passengers. This technology didn't really exist. Everything was manual, you know, phone calls, emails, Excel spreadsheets. And there's many, it, it, it takes a lot of moving, there's lots of moving pieces into getting an airplane from place, place A to place A to place B. And doing it over a phone call is, is you know, you know, it works, but it's not nearly as efficient uh, or safe as doing it electronically. So the initial products that we built were around enabling efficient communications. Uh, we've more recently gotten into scheduling and dispatch where um, it's more around is the aircraft legal to fly, fly is the crew legal to fly, you know, have you requested all the services at origin and a destination, you know, catering, water, hotels, you know, fuel, um, et cetera. So there's, you know, many, 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 many com- components to enabling this flight. And uh, we started in one place and have expanded over the last couple of years. Are they using any kind of existing technology stack that's somewhat standardized across the industry, just to even have like the basics of schedules and that kind of stuff? There's nothing that's that's standardized. I mean, pockets of the industry have software. So, you know, there, there are scheduling and dispatch systems that, you know, mostly are very old, call it 30 plus years old. I mean, they're probably one of the earliest kind of SaaS businesses out there. Um, they, they're certainly not cloud-based, but, you know, it is a subscription model. <laughs> For on for on premise software, so th- there's certainly s- some software in the space, but we found that most operators struggled to get data from from system A to system B, and be able to communicate electronically, have access to their data, be able to share that data in a secure way with the right users. So the, we, we just found an incredible need for for software, and um, it's an industry that we knew, and um, you know, my co-founder and I really liked. So it was you know, easy to dive in. And I feel like every day we are discovering a new, you know, new segment of the industry, new use cases, um, new types of uh, operators, new types of flying. Um, so it's it's been really fun. It feels like, you know, the world is more global and connected than ever and can, continues to be so. But it feels like aviation hasn't changed much in the last, I don't know, 30 so years. What changes have you seen, uh, you know, being on the inside? And I guess, where do you see the industry going? Well, I mean, you know, 30 years is, is a long time. I mean, on, on the commercial aviation side, tickets have gotten a lot cheaper. So, you know, people fly a lot more than, 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 than people have flown before, largely because it's, it's more accessible. There are far more airports now. So you can, you know, now fly nonstop to Venice. You couldn't before. There's many more places that are accessible. Aircraft have gotten um, more capable as well as on the, especially on the com- on the commercial side. So the Boeing 737s, they fly you know two engines. They're really efficient. They fly quite far. So that opened up nonstop flights between many many more locations. I mean, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, you would certainly need to you know fly to New York first and then hop to Europe. Or fly to Denver to 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 go to, you know to an, another airport you know maybe an hour away, but now there are far more nonstop flights. On the on the business side, uh, as well, I mean the, there's you know there's business aircraft now that can you know fly as far as as commercial aircraft. So you know flying from London to Sydney is not possible. It was never you know nonstop it was never possible before. So you can fly to more places and. Uh, do so less, you know, more inexpensively than before. 
And as a result, uh, a lot more people are flying and these aircraft, so more people are flying and the aircraft are used a lot more than they were used before. You know, uh, so utilization is much higher. And of course, all of us have seen on the commercial side that, you know, there's now more seats on the plane than they, you know, on the, and lug space is smaller. So, you know, not every change is positive, but, but tickets have gotten cheaper. Yes, absolutely. And to your point, definitely more destinations that you can go direct between. I've heard, um, I've heard some companies building electric uh, airplanes. What are your thoughts on that space? Uh, it, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to watch. And, uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of noise in the space. Um, lo, lo, lots of folks have, you know, there's, because it's easy, like, like we said earlier, it's easy to, to start up a, an aircraft manufacturer, uh, in, in the U S or, over other places. So there's, lot, there's lots of VC money that has flown into the space. Um, and there's lots of people trying to build different size and configuration aircraft, some for high speed, some for high distance, some for high, uh, you know, load carrying capacity, et cetera. Um, what, what's fascinating to me is that there is a company that has now has a certified electric aircraft. It's a Slovenian manufacturer called Pipistrel that was recently acquired by Textron, which is, you know, a giant in, in, in aviation. So, uh, electric aircraft are quickly coming out of this experimental stage, say it were. Yes, there's many of them, but they can only fly two people. They're not, they're legal to fly experimentally, but they're not certified to transport paying customers, for example, into a, into a place where these electric aircraft are now certified. And, you know, granted, these are smaller aircraft and it will take time for larger aircraft to be certified, but it's certainly, it's certainly coming that's a cool space. I've also been trying to follow a little bit the VTOL, the vertical takeoff and landing space. <laughs> what else are you seeing that's interesting and kind of new innovation in aviation? Well, you know, eVTOL e- 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 is certainly very promising. I mean, it, it takes that electrified flight idea and combines it with a helicopter, call it, so you can hypothetically land, you know, on your roof or, you know, land in, in the downtown. That, that's further afield. Um, and the the technology will be there to support those aircraft relatively, you know, call it five five to ten years. Energy density in the battery will be high enough to to support these flights. They will they will, the aircraft themselves will be certified. Whether we'll be flying into downtown San Francisco anytime soon from just a noise and safety perspective, probably not. But you know, is it going to be easy and relatively inexpensive, like all the cost of an Uber flight or Uber, um, you know, ride? To go from you know Marin County to to San Jose, that's you know would normally take two hours by car, you know do that in twenty five minutes by by an EV toll. I, I think that's coming. Do you airport, think they'll be? Not do you think they'll be autonomous, or do you think they'll still have a manual uh, pilot? Uh, twenty years out, I think they will be autonomous. I think we are more likely to see commercial planes with a single pilot, single you know human pilot in the front seat, than a second pilot on the ground. Before we see fully autonomous flight. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of like a hybrid, almost, where you're reducing the number of pilots that you need, but the ground yeah. crew becomes a bigger piece. Yes, and you know that that's certainly coming to cargo flights and uh, you know flights to you know to more remote locations. I mean, it's uh, a few airlines are already doing this, so it's uh, you know FAA is is kind of is wading into those waters, and you know there's a, a huge pilot shortage. So I can see like the uh, autonomous flights. They, there's going to be a few steps before we get to autonomous flights, and kind of reducing the number of of pilots in the cockpit requirement will probably be a a step in that direction.
You know, one other thing that always seemed like an opportunity to me, it's, you know, when you look at the ground traffic, like cars, you have one plane that you can actually, you know, deal with in terms of figuring out logistics and navigation. But in the air, you can now go at all different types of elevation. And it feels like with a lot of these new types of planes and VTOL and all that, you should be able to take advantage of those different layers. Is that something that's also being discussed? It it certainly is being discussed. And it's a very hard problem to solve. I mean, air traffic control today is not able to, it's not not infinitely scalable. If you have 10 times as many aircraft in the sky tomorrow as you have today, I mean, the systems that they use today to manage airspace around airports safely will not scale. So there's a lot of conversations around how how do we do we enable airspace uh, air, air traffic control to actually manage a much higher number of aircraft in, in you know in their airspace, and uh, you know a few startups that are working on that the, you know the FAA is certainly working on it a, a few industry players are working on it it's it's a very interesting problem to solve and it's not a simple one. It feels very complex also in terms of whenever you are taking off and landing, you're going to have to go through multiple different airspaces that could be different lanes of traffic and figuring out how you essentially merge. uh, That feels like a hard problem. Right. And how do you prioritize kind of, you know, pass, you know, kind of commercial passenger traffic, flying larger aircraft versus, you know, small private planes and, you know, who gets to land where, who needs landing slots, who doesn't. Um, It's, 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 it's a, it's an interesting challenge. I'm excited for that world. I want uh, an autonomous EV toll so I never have to drive again and can get places very quickly. <laughs> so do I. And, you know, if you go to industry conferences, you can see them. I mean, there's, you know, five or six or, you know, m- maybe even more than that, you know, manufacturers that have products that 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 work, right? And you could go from point A to point B. I mean, not very long but uh, and not very high, but you can. And it will certainly get better. I feel like uh, the regulatory challenge is actually bigger than the technological one for a lot of those. Uh, yes, that's that's definitely right, and uh, I, I think F- FIA and you know and similar regulatory bodies outside the U.S. I mean, first and foremost, they care about safety, and you know a, a lot of st- a lot of startups. I mean, you know, we build software, so it's a little bit easier. But a lot of start you know startups think about building quickly. And, you know, for experimental flying, FAA is, is very happy for you to be building something quickly. But once an aircraft is certified for, you know, for, you know, general public to use and for paying passengers, you know, quickly doesn't work. It needs to, it needs to be 100% safe 100% of the time. And that requires a very different approach to okay. building it and manufacturing yeah. it. It's, it's difficult to build a commercial airplane. I believe it. And I mean, I feel like the other thing that I'm sure people are taking into consideration is, you know, the second people started flying drones, even just, you know, your little hobby drones, people want to shoot them out of the sky because it's fun. And you, if you, you know, 100x the number of things that are flying in the sky, I can only imagine what additional attack vectors that brings. Right. And, you know, it, you know, m- most neighbors are not going to want somebody, you know, flying this thing off of their roof. I mean, first, it's, it's, it's heavy. It's, you know, it's loud. Uh, and and that's why I think you know EV tolls will certainly work, but you know the first step will be flying from a licensed airport to a licensed airport where you know noise noise abatement issues have already been solved, and there's you know fuel service, there's infrastructure to support it, and for you know locations that are over 100 miles apart, and there's you know plenty of those. I mean, it will be a very very useful uh, way you know from getting from point A to point B. Yeah. 
Makes sense. Well, given you've been to uh, over 100 countries, I have to ask, what is both your favorite place you've been in the world and the most random place? Most ra- So most random, let's start with the most random place. Most random place is certainly Mongolia. Uh, uh, my wife and I spent, you know, a bit of time in China, and um, you know, wanted to see Mongolia, and uh, and just ha- had an absolute blast. But it's a very difficult place to get to unless you're, you know, flying from from China. I don't think there's direct flights, and it's not easy to get to. Absolutely fascinating, beautiful country. And one of my favorite places got to be Alaska. And just the the, the natural, uh, you know, beauty and being, you know, kind of endless hiking and. Uh, it's just the number of outdoors activities. I love the outdoors. The number of things you can do is, is, is just absolutely endless. And the sheer size and scope is, is fascinating. So that, that's got to be one of my favorite places. I'm really big into all outdoor stuff and backpacking, mountaineering, all that. And Alaska has been at the top of my list for a very long time. So I will definitely make sure to hit that up at some point. Definitely do. I I haven't spoken to anybody who's regretted, you know, going to Alaska. I believe it. Well, Alec, this has been amazing. The last question I really like to ask people is, have there been any uh, guidance or words of wisdom you've been given in your life that are now words you live by? Oh, a lot. Uh, Hmm. I mean, a a few come to mind, you know, always making your best effort and, uh, you know, that, you know, and and pursuing your dreams and, uh, and not stopping short. I mean, just, just, you know, going, going for it and, uh, and, you know, and always, I guess, approaching problems from the perspective of how do we make it work as opposed to why is it not going to work? There's always endless number of reasons why something is not going to work. But Mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur, you know, taking risks is, 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 is part of the, you know, day by day, hour by hour routine. So it's, it's a question of, you know, how do we make it work? And I think that applies to, to life as well. You know, how can we make that trip? How can we make something happen? And thinking about that over why, why isn't, why isn't not going to work? And uh, probably the best one is treating other people the same way that the, as you would like to be treated. That, uh, you know, as, as the team has grown to, you know, over a hundred people and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, from, you know, at home and uh, in personal life and at work, I mean, it kind of, if you stay true to that, to that, it, it's kind of really helps make a lot of complicated decisions very simple. I love all of those. And I think uh, that's really why I love spending my time with entrepreneurs in that there's this unbounded optimism and persistence. And I feel like that is, um, you know, that's what gets people through the hard times, but also what allows them to do unimaginable things and just, you know, novel innovation and all that. So I think those are all. Yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think that's right. You got to enjoy, enjoy the risk taking and enjoy, enjoy the road because I mean, entrepreneurship is, is complicated, takes time and there's lots of pitfalls along the way. (laughs) Absolutely. I've seen it many times. (laughs) Alec, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really fascinating. I learned a ton. Um, If anybody is interested in the private aviation space, check out portside.co. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here.